Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Spend enough time looking at the fundamental documents to where you know them so well that you know how to use them when it comes to it. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Steve? Good, good. We're still in the week between Christmas and New Year's. So, uh, you know, although I feel like we're working as hard as ever, usually not as much gets done during this week. I know this week is crazy, but I am so excited for 2020 to be over. <laughs> I know, I know. It'll be, uh, I mean, 2021 can't be any any worse. Knock on wood, Tony. Yeah, exactly. I know. I do feel like I'm jinxing myself. I would I would yell no. at my wife right now if she had said something like that. <laughs> I'm going to get Raz to edit that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, we've got a really exciting guest joining us in between. Fantastic guest, yes. In between the holidays, we've saved one of our um, most exciting cases for the last. I guess this is the last episode we're recording this year, right? La- last recording. It'll be one of the first of 2021 by the time everybody hears it but uh but yes uh, so everybody knows we're still in 2020 um yes okay so our guest today is Krista Castaneda um she is the founder of the Castaneda firm um which focuses on energy and technical litigation um you can look her up at castaneda-firm.com that's c a s t a n e d a-firm.com uh, Krista, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be with you. I am so excited to talk about Krista. I want to I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you before we get into the case we're going to talk about today. Um, Krista is based in Dallas. She does a lot of oil and gas litigation, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, she's been doing that for over 25 years. She's been named an elite trial lawyer by the National Law Journal and has been inducted into the Texas Lawyers Texas Verdicts Hall of Fame and as a fellow of the Texas Bar Foundation. Of course, she's got those recognitions that uh, we we talk about a lot. She's a, a numerous times super lawyer and best lawyer in America. Uh, Chris's background is a little bit different than a lot of our guests. Um, She attended Harvard. She's got a degree in engineering. Um, And then she went to law school at SMU. She was like, engineering, not hard enough. I've got to step it up. (laughs) Um, And so she's got a ton of experience communicating sort of difficult scientific concepts to to judges and juries. And we're going to we're going to touch on some of those today. Um, and she's doing that in the ener- energy industry in Texas, which uh, is pretty male dominated. And she's out there crushing it. Um, she's also an author. She co-authored the book called The Last Trial of T. Boone Pickens. And we are going to talk about that book and, and the stuff covered in that book today. Um, but before we get to that, one of the cool things that I, I was telling Krista before we started recording that I was doing some research about her. And there are a lot of interviews with Krista um, in the arena of sort of political strategy and, and, and crisis communication. And I was hoping you could just tell people a little bit about that, Krista, and and if and how that sort of informs or factors into the work that you do for your clients. Oh, sure. So, yeah, I, I actually have a side hustle in the realm of corporate communications. And of course, anytime a client is facing a bet the company piece of litigation, there's always going to be some media to deal with. 
Um, and so you got to harmonize, you know, what you're saying to the media with what you're going to say to the judge and jury uh, and, and make sure that you're not giving away your trial strategy, but you're also um, letting people know what the case is about within the bounds of our ethical duties, of course. Um, so that's always fun. And figuring out when and how to communicate is um, a part of a great trial strategy. Yeah. And I mean, it's something that I, I is so tricky and is, is it, I feel like it's tricky. You know, I'm always thinking through like what we can say and not say in a case, even when it's a simple case, let alone right. when it's a really complicated case and a high profile case, like the case we're going to talk about um, today. Well, and especially because different courts will have different local rules on what they allow you to say to the, uh, to the media. So uh, you got to be careful of that too. So it's always right. something. And especially, I'm going to assume, uh, Kristen, will talk about this. I'm going to assume that when you're dealing with somebody who uh, is as well-known, is as accomplished, uh, and has a big personality like T. Boone Pickens, that might not be the easiest thing to do all the time. Yeah, he was he was an interesting cat. I, I loved working with him, even though he was he and I would get into it from time to time. Um, I write about that in the book. But uh, he uh, he was definitely a larger than life personality. But at the end of the day, he was a great communicator. And back to the point of working with the media, you know, he was featured in the media prominently for 40 years, really, right. um, and made a whole career out of you know, talking to people in a way that people could understand. And so from that perspective, he got it. You know, he knew that we needed to have a case that ordinary people could understand. And, you know, if we needed to talk to the media about it, that was the way we were going to talk to the media about it. So kind of an ideal situation in terms of an informed client, which, of course, is what we always want. Yeah. Well, and so I'll talk a little bit about the case that we're going to talk about today and the tremendous result that that Krista got. And as we've mentioned a few times, it involves a business dispute. And her client was uh, T. Boone Pickens and his company, um, Mesa, I just lost it, Mesa Petroleum, right? That's correct. Mesa Petroleum Partners. Got it. And um, if you, I think most of our listeners probably know who T. Boone Pickens is. I managed to even know who he was. And I would say, I would say I'm better about knowing stuff like that more recently, but I, I've known who he was for a long time. Um, famous Texas oil man, former corporate raider. Uh, he passed away in 2019 uh, after the result in this case. And just to give our listeners some background about the case and, and, and we'll dig into it, but this involved basically by the time of trial, it was about a decade old sort of business dispute or arrangement that had started roughly 10 years before that, um, where T. Boone Pickens had, and I'm, I know I'm going to say T. Bone Pickens at some point during, okay. <laughs> during this episode, so I just want to not catch it. So everyone forgive me, but... Um, so Mr. Pickens had entered an agreement with J. Cleo Thompson and two uh, Midland-based oil companies, Baytech and Delaware Basin Resources. Those were the defendants in the case. Uh, and it, the deal was to acquire and drill oil wells in um, what's called uh, the Red Bull region of the, is it Permian? Basin? Yes. Okay. Right. And I think this is probably, and we'll be asking Chris some questions about this. I don't know how, how, um, if, if like Texans all hear those words and just kind of know exactly where that is and what that means, but yeah, I, you know, I, I never knew what an area of mutual interest was. And now I know. <laughs> right. Right. So we'll dig into it. Luckily it's, this is a Krista's area of expertise, so she can, she can help us out. Um, 
But so they enter in a business deal uh, that was related to these oil wells. And so Mr. Pickens' company, Mesa, had a 15% interest under this uh, joint agreement that they had, a, a participation agreement, out of what would come out of these um, oil wells, the reserves in these areas, and that sort of thing. And as you can ima imagine, it's a case because there ends up being a dispute about that and somebody doesn't pay. Um, it's specifically... Uh, T. Boone Pickens and his company, Mesa, uh, they just stopped getting paid by the defendants. They stopped being consulted about their interest in this area. And the defense, and we'll talk about it, basically said that this was Pickens' choice, that he voluntarily gave up on this business deal. And, and part of what was coloring the background of the case was that this was around 2008 during the financial crisis. And so there were some assertions about who was feeling financial pressure to make certain decisions. So really interesting background of the case. And, you know, it's just argued whether who whether they owed him money or not. And so they end up having to take it to trial. Chris's team takes it to trial. And they go to a Reeves County, Texas jury in 2016, and they win, and they win big. They got about $146 million in favor of, of Mesa. And some of those findings include included findings of gross and willful misconduct and for attorney's fees. So not just a win, but a, a win that's pretty tough. And and we'll talk about the the, what I would call the verdict form in this case, but it was it, not an easy verdict form for a jury yeah. to go through. Um, so lots of really terrific findings in a case that had a lot of hurdles, including the fact that it's a complicated business dispute. Um, as you mentioned, Krista, at this point, I think you mentioned, but at, the, at this point, Mr. Pickens was getting, getting getting older. So his his health was suffering by the time, at least that you went to trial. And, so there's so much to cover about this win, but one of the things that I read, Kristen, in an interview um, with you about this case in your book that I thought was so interesting was that you had mentioned that when you first got involved in this case, you had been consulted by Mr. Pickens as, as it being kind of a small contract dispute. Right. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you could talk about your you know, take us through how you first get involved and, and end up seeing this case for what it really was. Sure. So um, T. Boone Pickens had been a client of mine when I was a partner in a big law firm. Um, and I, I was in big law for 20 plus years and decided in 2014 that I'd had enough and I was going to form my own law firm and um, come what may, you know, it was it was going to be me and, and my associate and my paralegals and we were going to see how it would all pan out. And one of the very first cases when I opened my door was this case and his general counsel and I had lunch and he said, well, you know, I've got this this contract matter and it's probably a small contract matter. And so he gives me a file that's, you know, maybe half an inch thick and and I start looking at it and I start looking at um, where the dispute was, what the dispute was about and where it was about and realized uh, this could be a billion dollar dispute. And, and just back to for a second about what you were saying about yeah. the nature of the dispute. Um, so it's a series of option contracts. An area of mutual interest agreement is kind of the way wildcatting gets done where drilling hasn't taken place before. And what you do is you, you 
it kind of outlined an area of territory where you're going to go buy some land or leases and you're going to drill for oil. And if you're successful, then you're going to buy more leases and drill more wells. And the, the, the challenge in the deal is you don't know what you're going to go after or how big it's going to be until you get rolling. It's, it's, a, it's a series of option contracts. And obviously, you got to trust your partners um, to tell you when they're going and getting land and drilling wells when you're a passive investor, as Mr. Pickens was. So um, he got cut out of the deal at some point, And that's what we took to trial. Yeah. So, and it, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Everybody. Well, I just to, to make sure I understood, it sounded like initially, you know, he puts up his he invests his money and then at least for a period of time and, and they're collecting his share of the expenses or, or whatever Correct. every month. And then it sounded like for the first at least couple of um, of of I guess wells or ventures or 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 whatever he's he gets this sort of written notice and this opportunity to basically I guess confirm he's opting in or, or yes or whatever yeah. and yes. then those just stop yes okay and the trick in this in a case like this is you don't know whether it's stopped because it just didn't make. Right. Or because somebody forgot about you or took your share. Um, And as we discovered in the case, it was the latter and not the former. And boy, was it a big, big deal. So, yeah. Yeah. And I guess that part of it was that uh, back in 2007, and then of course, you know, we have the financial crash in 2008, and that was a big sort of theme for both sides in the, in the case for the defense and for the plaintiffs. But uh, the Red Bull, I guess, hadn't, it, it wasn't known as what it is today, which is apparently one of the biggest um, oil finds that there's ever been. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, so the Permian Basin spans, you know, all the, the whole half of West Texas and all the way into um, New Mexico. So it's a giant area. And, you know, there's been oil there for forever, right? I mean, we've we've known there's oil in West Texas. But what was unique about this was the particular zone, the particular geological um, play that they were going after uh, hadn't been developed before. It was brand new. um, And that's why this that's why you do this area of mutual interest thing is because you need people to come in and help with the money to develop all of this. And if you hit it big and you're the first one, which was what this was, um, you prove out a whole lot of, of land and that makes your land very, very valuable. Um, so prices ran up by like, uh, you know, uh, 20 times what the acquisition costs were, plus you get the value of all the future income from the oil. So that's why right. you do this. Um, but, and the Red Bull was just the, you know, it's kind of like the, um, the, the, the mission name, right? If you were in the military, you'd give it a mission name. Well, they gave this, this particular deal, the Red Bull title, um, just to describe to themselves what they were talking about. So well, one thing I was wondering is I read up on, uh, I guess, Jimmy Thompson, who uh, was the, uh, I guess he was the CEO of J. Cleo Thompson. And he seemed like he was sort of a big personality too. And so it's sort of known as a famous wildcatter 
in Texas, um, but he passed away in 2010. And I think one of the big disputes was whether or not there had been a phone call between Mr. Pickens and Mr. Thompson, where Mr. Pickens allegedly said, according to the defense, you know, I'm out, you, this is a bunch of crooks or something like that. But I was wondering, since they were both about the same age, uh, were had they been friends or had they done business deals together before? They had had a couple of other deals together. And of course, they knew of each other. I don't think that they were personally friends, but they knew each other by reputation. And of course, yes, that's exactly what got tried was the issue of did Mr. Pickens say on a phone call to a man who had since died, but the phone call was overheard by somebody else. Um, did he actually say, well, you don't need to send me any notices anymore because I don't want to participate anymore? That was one issue. And then, of course, the legal issue, since we're probably talking to a bunch of lawyers who are listening, is does the statute of frauds keep you from asserting that somebody orally opted out of uh, a land deal or do you have to have a writing? And at the end of the day, that's what we tried the case on was, hey, you don't get out of a land deal without a written document saying I'm out of that land deal. Right. Yeah, I thought that was very persuasive. I mean, when you read, we had transcripts of the opening and closing and the way you all had framed the issues. I mean, two things really jumped out to me that just the way that it was framed. And of course, Steve and I don't know what all the evidence was, but just the way you all had themed the case was so strong because like one of the themes seemed to be if you were involved in these kind of deals, would you handle something like this with a phone call? Right, right. And one of the other themes where I felt like just because of the way it was themed, how could you lose was, you know, on your side, you had the duty of, you know, good faith, doing your business dealings in good faith. Whereas their theme, even the way they seemed to phrase it was like, look after yourself and and do what's best for for you personally. Right. I mean, in that sense, the trial was a classic showdown, right? You know, uh, Buyer beware versus, hey, wait a minute, you had a fiduciary duty. And and you're right. You know, I think one of the strongest themes we had, and, and it was so driven home by our local counsel, a man named Bill Wynock, who helped me board hire the jury, um, was you don't do anything important in life without paperwork. Right. You know, you want a divorce, you got to have paperwork. You want to get married, you got to have paperwork. Sell a car. Buy a house all requires somebody signing on the dotted line. And this is no different and particularly so because we were trying to get a billion dollars, which is what we claimed the 15% interest was worth. Right. I mean, that just to me was so sort of like mm, a phone call. And and yeah. the other way, and I don't, I don't know if this was this was because of the way the argument was presented and well-crafted, but it really was persuasive to me, the, the argument that why, why would he do that? Why would he pay the expenses to be a part of this venture? Why would he just give that up? Why would he give up the potential money that he could make? Right. I mean, so the 2008 crisis, you know, as Pickens testified on the stand, you know, at one point, his high watermark was he was worth $4 billion. He lost $2 billion in, in 2008. No, he lost a billion dollars, gave away another $2 billion and still had a billion dollars left. And, and they were arguing that the expenses 
a million dollars to date in this project were more than he wanted to bear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had a really good way of explaining this to the jury and saying, does that make any sense? You know, that I'm not going to pay a million dollars for the possibility of a billion. Um, And, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting, interesting uh, way of presenting it. Well, um, I, I wanted to talk about, so there's this sort of like a string of emails or, or some documents going back and forth where, you know, they say they've got this phone call. And so obviously the testimony of, of Mr. Pickens is going to be very important about what he said or what he meant. But they seem to have a lot of uh, uh, document trail afterwards, basically saying, you, you know, you guys are really out, right? Or you're, you know, um, you know, what do you need to do to be out? Or they even had one, I think that said, it looks like they're, you know, Mace is going to back out of this uh, deal or, you know, back out of the, uh, of, of selling their interest, you know, and, and then they're, you know, and even though they had this sort of paper trail saying all this, their theme at, at, at trial was, well, he just gave it up for free because, he just didn't want to have to pay the expenses anymore. Basically. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. So what the, the, the chronology was, they wanted more interest. The people who ended up taking, realize it's like a pie, right? And you're going to divide that pie uh, between how many other people are participating. And so if Pickens 15% weren't covered, somebody else would pick it up and, and, and buy that interest, right? And it ended up being bought by by Delaware Basin Resources, one of the defendants. And it was interesting that in the chronology, you could see that they needed more interest in order to finance some things um, before anybody started talking about whether Pickens was opting out. And then even after they said he opted out, they tried to buy him out. And so there were a lot of inconsistencies. You know, you got you to have a cohesive theme in trial that makes sense, like, all the pieces fit together. And I really think that was a big challenge for the defense was, you know, they, it was kind of a, well, first we said this and and then, you know, it, when that didn't work, we tried to buy it out and, but it didn't get bought out and the paper trail showed that they knew that they didn't buy it out, but then they took it anyway. So not, not a pretty picture. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. 
Uh, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So you you touched briefly and Steve mentioned this as, as well that a lot of the case was was going to come down to what Mr. Pickens was going to say um, on the stand or at least he ended up, you know, you know, you've got, you've got Mr. Thompson who's passed away at that point. So, you, you know, and this is a case about Mr. Pickens, but you also, one of the things that you had said in one of the interviews I read with you about your book was that um, even though this trial was really hard on Mr. Pickens, sounds like even physically at, at that point that he was, um, you know, really dedicated to seeing this through to being there in the courtroom. And, and I'm, I was wondering if you could just talk about him, what it was like on the stand and their cross-examination also. Sure, sure. Okay, so, you know, Mr. Pickens had been involved in all kinds of legal disputes over, you know, 40 or 50 years. Um, but for some reason, this was the most important trial and lawsuit of his entire life to him. Um, as he put it on the stand, um, this was the biggest play of his life, and it felt awful to be cut out of the deal in the biggest play, oil play of his life. Um, I think he had a strong sense that, you know, justice and fair dealing required a different result, and he was going to take it to trial to prove that. Um, and, you know, ended up getting the result that he wanted, but at terrible personal cost. He, he, he ended up suffering a series of mini strokes, possibly brought on by the stress of the trial. Oh, wow. Um, and it, it cost him his health and ultimately his life. Now, he passed at 91, which is a full long life, but, you know, one never knows if the stress of trial, um, help contribute to, you know, an earlier death than he might otherwise have had. Right. Um, but I will say this, I have never had a client so invested in a case from the standpoint of he was there every minute of that trial. He understood everything that was going on. He sat through, you know, board iron, open, close, you know, soup to nuts. And, and the only thing um, that he didn't, get to see was when the jury came back because he had flown off to be checked out medically. Oh, um, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, so, man. Yeah. So he um, he really gave it his all and invested his all in, in, in this. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, by the way, is because I don't think that most of our clients, even if they're sophisticated, even if they're, you know, got 500 lawyers in their legal department, really understand what it takes to go through a major trial like this, particularly on the plaintiff's side. And, and I, I, I hope when people read this, that they understand, you know, really how complicated and um, intense the whole process is and really what it takes to 
to get through a trial of five weeks. Oh yeah. And what a, just an exhausting, uh, period of time it is. I mean, it, it can, it's, uh, you know, adrenaline filled and, and exhilarating all at the same time as just draining. And, uh, you know, at the end of every day, you're, you're sort of spent in the, and then, uh, try and figure out a way to get up early for the next day. Yep. <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested, um, in, you know, when you're picking the jury for this case, I mean, you've got somebody who's, um, who's famous, your client is, is famous, at least, I mean, probably more so in Texas than everywhere else, but I mean, he's internationally famous. And, and so you've got that level on top of the, the level that we've talked about before, Steve, I think in some of the other business cases we've talked about, which is you don't know if your jury is going to come in, how they're going to feel about a dispute between what they're going to perceive as a bunch of rich businessmen and a right. bunch of money. Yeah. So, um, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what your, what your, your pool was like, and then the issues you kind of like that, that you flagged and how you, how you handled those in jury selection. Well, and let, let me add, you, you tried this in, in Reeves County, Texas, which is West Texas. So, um, which I understand is, is, uh, Pecos. So talk a little bit about the jurisdiction, the venue you were in and, and, uh, and how you weave that in with your voir dire. Sure. Okay. So Pecos is an oil town. It, um, went through a tremendous boom uh, from like 2009, 10 on. Um, and by the time we were in 2016, it's seen a little bit of a fall off because oil fell off. But, um, you know, just went through this tremendous growth. But still is a very small town um, out in the middle of nowhere. You know, if you drive west on I-20 um, from Fort Worth and keep going for many, many hours, get to Midland, and then you drive another hour and a half beyond that. And that's where Pecos is. So it's kind of in the great middle of uninhabited West Texas. Um, but one thing that that is true is everybody understands oil. Everybody understands what it means to take an oil lease. And everybody understands you know, what oil companies do. Um, and, and it's interesting because they both they see it both ways. And sometimes you find this in other types of cases as well, right? They're both one of the most significant employers, but they're also not necessarily thought of positively because like there's tremendous truck traffic and there's all these accidents and you know, people know people who got laid off or got hurt. So so there's this really mixed feelings about the industry to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, but really Back to the issue of picking the jury, and it's 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 a largely Hispanic um, area, and I think we ended up with a, all Hispanic uh, members of the jury and more women than men. Um, but picking the jury, even though they were of a different socioeconomic status, everybody I think shared the fundamental value that people have to live by the deals they sign and the obligations that the oil industry um, understands and follows. And that it was very important. And you saw this in our closing, very important for a place like Pecos to be trusted as a place that enforces the law and, and doesn't just let people get by on, you know, sharp tactics. Um, so, that that I think really resonated, regardless of who was suing whom, you know, I mean, the truth of the matter is, and I think I, I said this in closing as well, um, you know, 
we were talking about a lot of money. And again, it was a pie. And even though Mr. Pickens, who was a wealthy person, was asking for a lot of money, remember that the other side was keeping five times as much as he was going to get because they had made that money. So, so that, that was a, but you're right. That's a, that's a, that's a struggle that we all have when we are dealing with these huge, huge numbers. Yeah. But that makes sense. Especially I like that idea of, you know, that it, it does affect that their community, basically it's a business that's so tied with their community that they want it, you know, would want it to be an honorable, um, sort of things to be done the right way. Right. Um, I know I'm kind of jumping between the, the, the beginning and there before the trial and the end of the trial, but I did want to ask you, you know, we touched before on sort of some of the themes that you had developed in your, in your opening and in the close, one of the things that you did that I thought was really interesting is you had split up, you had split up the opening and close between your co-counsel on certain issues. And, um, I'm wondering if you could speak to that decision, if it was about keeping it punchy, if it was about organizing the issues or, or what? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, we had a huge trial team, right? We, at first it was, you know, in discovery, it was just me and my associate. And then I added, um, an appellate practitioner that I've known for 25 years because I don't go to trial without an appellate lawyer ever, because I know that what we're going to get into is going to be sufficiently complex and reviewed, you know, several levels that I've got to make sure I'm watching that record. So I added him. Then I added, when we got about six months out of trial, I added some other um, lawyers from uh, the law firm that helped me, Lynn Pinker Cox and Hurst at the time. Um, it's since been renamed, but Lynn Pinker. Um, and they um, they did a fabulous job. But one of the things that I think is very important when I'm the lead trial lawyer, I know I can't do it all. And frankly, mm-hmm. opening and closing are great, but to me, they're not the meat of the trial. To me, the meat of the trial is, is the evidence and the cross examinations. Mm-hmm. And we've got to make sure that those themes are presented well in opening and closing. And, um, and I do think you have to keep it punchy in a business case. And I also thought that it was important because it was a team effort that the jury got to see the contributions of the team throughout. Right. And, and, and I'm, it's also a little bit of hedging your risks, right? Because you don't really <laughs> yeah. know, does the jury like me? Does, right. d- does all the jury like me? Do, do maybe some of them like, you know, my co-counsel a little bit better, or maybe he has a different way of saying it that's going to get through to some heads in a way that what I talk about, which tends to be very engineering and evidentiary, um, you, you know, maybe maybe they, they're going to get through a little bit better. I mean, I, I think that as trial lawyers, especially when we're taking cases to trial that have these huge stakes, um, we got to do what's right for our client and not necessarily what's right for our egos. Right. So that was my thinking. Yeah. Well, I think it's clear that the jury um, liked you or at least your team for for several reasons, including the fact that I thought it was funny going through the verdict form that you know, the award of attorney's fees to you and your team was like $4 million. Yeah. And the awards to the award for like where it applied for attorney's fees for, I I guess it was, I don't know if that was just sort of a, 
a thing the jury had to decide in terms of those some of those defenses that, that were raised by the defense or whatever. But the awards were like way, way, like $100,000. In fairness to the other side, they were only allowed to recover fees on a limited number of issues. And so I think some of that was due to segregation. Gotcha. Um, but one of my proudest moments and I, I'm a I'm a lawyer who I'm going to ask if I think the jury is with us. I'm going to ask them for exactly what I I want, what mm-hmm. I think we deserve. I'm not going to leave it to chance because it's complicated. And yeah. and if I can help them out by giving them mm-hmm. the answers that we need for them to write down, then I'm going to do that. And so I closed the the final word in the case was me saying please write down these very specific numbers. And when the jury came back and they read out every one of those very specific numbers, I was just, yeah, you know? Yeah. 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 I saw that you did that in the, in the final rebuttal, you just got up and you told them the numbers and, and that, you know, they were, you write down to the, I mean, you know, the $117 million, $485,615, and then a series of uh, basically $6 million awards for other claims. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was, uh, I, I thought that was great how they, um, uh, I mean, they, they gave you exactly what you asked for. Um, one thing I did want to ask, I saw, I read in one of your, um, in, in one of your interviews that you had a number of claims that you, that were in the complaint. And I guess several of those claims had gotten dismissed and there may have been a time pre-trial where I don't know if you were feeling down about the case or just feel like you had maybe taken a few hits. And then there were some sort of settlement discussions and you talked about some of the stuff that uh, Mr. Pickens talked about at that time. Uh, and, and you all, you know, persevered and kept going. Uh, but talk about, you know, some of the claims you brought in and that. And then, and then I was assuming when I saw the the attorney's fees award to the other side that it had to do with some of those uh, some of those claims that had been dismissed by the court. But is that what it was about? That is correct. So just answering the last part first, um, there are a few claims like we had sued for um, statutory theft. Um and our statute provided, I thought, for a cause of action. But if you plead it and lose it on summary judgment, then they're entitled to an award mm. of attorney's fees. You know, it's it's meant to discourage, you know, right. unfounded claims, right? So uh, that was one of the claims that was dismissed. Um, gosh, we had, at the end of the day, the case got tried on breach of contract, which was our first case, our first claim, but only one of about, well, right. Um, we had everything from fraud in real estate transactions to conspiracy to um, conversion to constructive trust to, to, you know, breach of fiduciary duty. And so almost all those claims got dismissed. I think that's an imp- another important thing to take away from this. If yeah. you're a, no- a new trial lawyer, right, you may feel like you're losing. Um, but you just got to get through on one claim, uh, even if the rest have been granted summary judgment. And you may not know till the very last minute whether you're going to get through on that claim. And and part of it is just having the courage of your convictions and knowing that you put together the best case possible. But you also got to have a client with you who's willing to mm-hmm. see it all the way through. Um, I knew 
very shortly after I picked up this case and started the discovery that I was going to have to try this case because of the amount of money that was involved Mm -hmm. and that we were going to win it. I felt very strongly about that. And even when the judge whittled us down from the billion dollars in damages that we sought to the 146 million that we got, um, or, you know, throughout, you know, 11 of my 12 pled claims, um, I still felt very strongly that we needed to see this through and that we had a very good chance of prevailing. And we did. I was I was thinking that, you know, as I was reading that when you get these claims whittled down, which I'm, you know, at the time that it happens probably doesn't feel good. But in the long run, uh, you know, when you're going up to the Court of Appeals and things like that, that probably uh, was was probably better to preserve the, uh, the, the case. Yeah, I mean. Right. And, and, and I wanted to mention this when we were talking about the very specific numbers that I asked the jury for. You know, I also knew that I had experts testifying to those exact numbers. And you're always looking about your record on appeal, right? You want to make sure that whatever gets done in the final verdict form and in the judgment is supported by the evidence. And so if you marry those things up in a way that the jury understands, that's a really good insurance policy for when you know you're going to get an appeal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the things I wanted to ask, and I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing, but it, so I guess one of the main bad actors in this whole thing was a, was a fellow named uh, Ben Strickling, I think the owner of Baytech and who had uh, set up the Delaware basin that had transferred Mesa's, um, uh, percentage once it was taken. And I noticed that you all started the trial right off the bat, calling him for cross-examination, uh, you, you know, and, and so, and that was actually the first place I really understood that Mesa was not a part of this deal from the beginning. They were brought into the deal later on because they needed more investors. And, and the, the documents that everybody agreed to had already been written by Baytech and by, uh, J J Cleo Thompson's, um, um, can't lawyers and, 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 and already been agreed to by them. Well, and, and, and back to the way these things get put together, you know, there is a group of core individuals who are going to do the work of finding the leases and identifying the prospects and figuring out where to drill and, and, you know, administer the whole project. Um, and they're going to take a bigger percentage than the passive investors like Pickens. Um, but one of the things that, as a passive investor you're doing is paying for the, the, the administration, right? So normally um, you're paying 15% of the costs in exchange for 15% of the ownership, except in the original group of acquisitions, you're going to pay a little bit more because that you're defraying the costs of the people who are actually doing the work to incentivize them to do the work. It's called a promote um, and, and it's pretty typical in these arrangements. So yes, um, Pickens was brought into the deal um, through the J. Cleo side of, of things um, because they were looking for more investors. You know, you defray the risk, you spread some of the rewards, but but you got to you gotta come up with a lot of cash to do one of these deals. Um, and we did call um, Ben Strickling adverse first because, I mean, that was a great challenge about this. We had the documents. But we didn't have any of the information because we were a passive investor. You know, it's 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 like any other investment um, stock market or otherwise, you know, you you get plaintiffs who really don't know what happened because 
that's not really their role in it. Their role was to put in the money and, and get the benefits that they signed up to get. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of calling them on cross, you know, right at the beginning, because I mean, one, it, it happens right after opening and then, and then you get right to the meat of the case, get right to, you know, the people who are, you know, responsible for it. And, you know, you make your points right there very quickly. So it's, I think it's a great way to start your case, but, but at the same time, you know, it, it obviously it can be risky, but you know, it's a calculated risk based on the, um, based on, you know, your, the documents you have, the preparation you have, and you obviously did a great job on cross-examination, but, um, but talk that's one about, of those things, by the yeah. way, Steve, as a new lawyer, like yeah. I remember my first trial, I was like, we're going to do what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it can be, it can be scary. Yeah. You know, especially when you doing it for the first couple of times, but it can also be one of the, the best parts of trial because, you know, in opening, you get to say, look, you don't have to believe what I'm telling you. You're going to hear it from them. We're, we're yeah. going to put them on the stand first, you know, and, and you're going to hear it right from them. What, what happened? Yeah. Um, The the other thing is I got, I can't overemphasize the benefits of stipulating in the admissibility of your, of your documents in a business, right? Because it's so complex. I mean, we had probably 1500 pre-marked exhibits um, and, you know, used a great portion of those. It came down to 60 or 80 or a hundred, you know, like it normally does, but, in a business case, it's so complex that you've got to be able to use those documents over and over and over and over again. And you can't have conditional admissibility. You got you got to just get them in there. And so people can understand what you're trying to say from the get go. No, absolutely. And, you know, and I, I honestly think we try to do this in every trial. It helps both sides. If you can just go ahead and have an agreement up front and then you can and then you can just deal with the documents. But if if you you know, have to lay a foundation for every document. It can, it not only can it be a pain for you, but it, it, the jury, it can get a little bit dull for it, you know, just the constant Absolutely. foundation. Yeah. Um, Chris, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I, so I've worked on a few business litigation cases, but they are to me so, so different from the other stuff that we do. I mean, to, so different from like a products case or a med mal case, just, I think a combination of the way that they come in and what you have to get your arms around and the fact that you've got sort of your clients, you've got your client's story, your client's version of what happened and the documents and stuff that your client has and has access to and actually gets to you. (laughs) And then you've got whatever's out there that you don't know about yet, or you might not know about. And, and, a lot of times it's really complex and you go into it with only part of the picture. And so, especially for our lawyers who are either newer or newer to that area, I was wondering if you could just give some general pointers about how you approach a case like this. Well, you have got to study every single material document backwards, forwards, inside, outside. I can't tell you how many times I went over the same documents to put them back in context. You know, I, 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 I'm a big believer in reading all the documents and organizing all the documents first, right? I don't wait to hear what somebody else thinks about them. I read them start to finish and then I go ask some questions and then I get those answers and I go back through them again because, you know, I, 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 and, and you know what, now I need to go ask for that other type of document because what I'm hearing this story from the other side doesn't gel with what I'm reading. So there must be something else out there. So it's a 
very iterative process and, and, you know, I'm building my educational base Mm -hmm. um, for the case every time I read those documents. And, and I think it's impossible to know the documents too well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to new, you're going to learn something new and have a slightly different perspective on, on them every time you read them. But honestly, that's what makes cross-examination effective. Yeah. Because if you, know, you haven't done that, I, I, I don't know how you cross-examine witnesses in a business case effectively. No, and it, it, you're exactly right because, you know, no matter what they say in deposition, they're going to, they're going to come up in trial and they're going to say whatever they they think is going to help their case. So you've got to be prepared, you know, with their deposition, you've got to be prepared with the documents and you got to be prepared to go where the witness goes, because sometimes uh, you can't just, you know, have your scripted questions and just stick with those. You've got to be able to follow them along a trail that they go down. And that's exactly um, right. You know, at the end of the trial, I remember cross-examining the accountant from the other side. And all I had was literally four, you know, index cards with some major themes on and, you know, the main documents that I wanted to cross-examine him with. But I had to listen to the direct exam and then it was in the direct exam and the way they presented the direct exam and the demonstrative they had for the direct exam that gave me the key to the cross-examination that I think was kind of like the final nail in the coffin. Um, but I hadn't heard it until that day. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you, but it again, back to what anybody who's listening to this can do, which is spend enough time looking at the fundamental documents to where, you know, them so well that you know how to use them when it comes to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's that type of cross-examination only comes from just meticulous preparation. Um, you know, and, and knowing things so well, I, I did want to, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what I, what I could tell, or at least look to me what the defense theme was and then, and then how you all handled this. And then, and then added on to that, I wanted to talk about how, how it was that Mr. Pickens ended up testifying for two days. Cause that sounds like a long time to put, keep anyone on the stand. Um, but first of all, so their theme, it seemed to me was that, you know, so you have this 2008 crash, everybody's doing bad financially. And then at least from their standpoint, they're saying, Mr. Pickens calls up, says, you know, I'm out. I don't want to pay any more expenses. I'm done. And then and then I what it looked to me like they're the way they were presenting this was that in 2014, there seemed to be some oil wells that maybe started hitting. And all of a sudden there was some money coming out of it. And then, you know, they were at least saying Mr. Pickens was like, well, now there's money coming out of this. Now I'm interested again. And, you know, so so I, there is, uh, you know, th- that is a, a little bit of a, a difficult argument, even though there is a signed document that, you know, you've got this five year gap in time where it's seemingly, you know, he doesn't do anything. And I realize he's older. And then, you know, and then all of a sudden it starts making money and then he, you know, he comes back and says, you know, no, I never gave you the interest in this. So I could see that as one of their themes. And then and then added to that, I want to see how, how did you handle that with Mr. With, with Mr. Pickens and then, and then how was it he was on the stand for two days? Was that you and the cross or is it just a mix of both or how, how did that? Yeah, it, it was, it was a mix of um, my direct, which is actually fairly short and their cross. Um, and just, a, you know, how it goes in trial scheduling, just as, yeah. you know, circumstances are that 
we don't get done and ready to put him on the stand until two o'clock in the afternoon, which is a pretty good challenge for a man of 88 years old, you know, to be still alert. And I mean, he was, he was, he was, he, he was all there, but you know, you get tired when you're 88 years old yeah. at three o'clock in the afternoon, you know, so I get tired was, at 48 years. old. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So we put him on the stand in the afternoon and they started a little bit across and then, um, uh, came back the next day. Um, yeah. So, and, and sorry, but I forgot what you, the, the, first part the, 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 the theme of the, of the, you know, basically him going away in 2009 oh, yeah, 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 and, yeah. Then, and then not showing back up until yeah. there's money coming out of it in 2014. Yeah. yeah. And, and so yes, the area became prolific with wells in the 2013, 2014 timeframe. Um, and that's what piqued his team's attention to the fact that whatever happened to what we paid for, you know, didn't we own an interest in land around that area and were any wells ever drilled on it? And, and yes, that was a big theme of the defense was, well, you you waited until it looked like it was good before you said anything. And I, and Pickens was really good about, you know, admitting to, things that he didn't feel so good about. He's like, well, look, you know, I'm 88 years old. I, I kind of didn't think about it again until I saw that there was activity out there. And then I told my team to go out and, and look and we filed, you know, the claim within months of that. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it, but I think some of that was understood by the jury to be just in the nature of what you're doing. Again, yeah, yeah. you can buy up a bunch of land and never build what you're proposing to build. Um, but once somebody does do what was proposed, then you're like, well, wait a minute, I was supposed to have a piece of that. Yeah. Well, and I guess, you know, when you're, when you're investing in things like this, I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I'm imagining that maybe he had a number of investments all over the place and, and and you just sort of wait for them to play themselves out and some That's of them exactly right some of them hit immediately some of them don't hit at all some of them hit in five years and, That's exactly right yeah um related to their defenses i was just curious um the one of the things that i that came up when i was reading i think the it had to be the closing somewhere um, that just, I feel like had to feel like a punch in the stomach. If you were at the, if you were on the defense side was that um, there was a reference to Mr. Milford and I can't, I can't remember how he factors in, but it was, it was somebody who basically you all had asked in his deposition, like, are you going to be a trial? Is there anything that would prevent you from coming to trial? And he was like, I'm going to be there. And then he wasn't there yeah, and you right. were able to, in closing, I don't know how it, how it came across to the jury, but to me, it was just like, ouch, it just sounded really bad. <laughs> well, yeah. So he was the person who had overheard in his telling, uh, Mr. Pickens telling J. Cleo Thompson that he was not going to be in the deal anymore. And so for him to say this and then say, yes, I'm going to come to trial and then not come to trial and not be able to stand up for, I actually heard this. I think that was, that was a, a definite factor in how the thing came out. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because as long as I've done this and I've been licensed 29 years now, um, 
there's always a new question. This is not a particularly novel one, right? This is an old trial lawyer's trick. Well, are you coming to trial? And then if they don't show up trial, you can say they were scared or whatever. Um, but it, it, there's always a nuance on these kinds of just like fundamental questions that I tell young lawyers, be prepared for the simple stuff. Like one time I had a products liability case um, where I was defending and I had a, um, a, a witness who was, you know, a safety inspector or something. And the plaintiff's lawyer just said, well, what does it mean to be safe? And the guy said, well, if you're not safe, it's like giving a loaded gun to a baby. And I'm like, how did I not yeah, think to be right. prepared for that question or prepare him better for that question? Of yeah. course, there's only so much you can do in witness preparation. But the same thing is true with this trick question of, are you coming to trial? You know, defense counsel, prepare your witness for that. And plaintiff's counsel, prepare your witness for that question because it should be on the standard list of questions yeah. about how to yeah. answer, right? Yeah. Well, and I'll say, you know, it, this sometimes it's the smallest questions that turn a jury on a witness. And I, I've given this example before, but I, I one time was cross-examining a psychiatrist who was on the other side. And she had driven from Macon to Savannah, uh, which is a, a, a two and a half hour drive if you're following the speed limit. A lot of people would do it in two hours. And I just asked her, you know, what she was charging. And, and I asked her, you know, how would you charge to come here to Savannah? And she said, well, I charge four hours. And everybody in the jury box, you know, I knew as soon as she said, I charge four hours from coming to Macon, Savannah. I was like, it took you four hours to get here from Macon. And, uh, it, it, you know, and I, I want to say the rest of my cross was good, too. But I knew after that one question that the jury wasn't listening to her anymore because, you know, she had just undercut her credibility yep. by charging too much for coming from, you know, a city that's not that far yep. away. Simple things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just thought that was good. That was kind of that was uh, that was new to me. I don't think I've ever thought I, I know I have never asked that question. Um, but so I didn't know that was kind of an old trick, but I was like, oh, that's good. Especially because you've got a client who's clearly, you know, suffering, but exactly. he's there every day. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason that that particular trick worked. Now, it, it you could probably do an entire podcast on just trial all your tricks and whether oh, yeah. they vary by jurisdiction, right? <laughs> that's an old trick in Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping 
helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Com, legal technology services uh, give them a try we haven't talked about it a lot we've talked a little bit about the damages um, and that the jury gave you what you asked for um, but I know it was a lot we made it sound a lot more simple than it was because you really had to lay a lot of the groundwork like about the reserves and all that stuff and how it's valued yeah um, so can you just talk a little bit about um, just about that, how you, how you handle testimony like that so that the jury sort of gets it, but you're also, you know, this is one of your areas of expertise, but it's pretty technical and kind of. Yeah. So in an oil and gas case like this, um, you're looking to measure the value of the investment in terms of the lost profits, right? Which is kind of typical for a business case. But in an oil and gas case, the lost profits are the, you know, future income stream from the wells that are drilled and are supposed to be drilled. But there's a, and particularly in this kind of an oil and gas development, there's a whole lot of probabilistic modeling that goes on to figure out how many barrels of oil are going to be extracted. And then you juxtapose it to the proposed, you know, the, 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 the um, strip price of oil, which is the futures price. Um, and, and you may have different, you know, futures um, that the and, and indices that you're supposed to use for this pricing. And then you got the net present value stuff layered on top of that. And so there's all of these engineering and accounting assumptions, plus you've got all the costs and you, there, there, there are, you know, indices for those. And it, it, it's a lot of engineering and accounting data. And we had a very active judge. This was actually his very first trial. And he oh, really? was doing everything he could to get on top of all of this complex stuff. And I realized I was, you know, I'm an individual practitioner. I had my, um, you know, boutique firm assisting me, um, but we were up against some of the largest law firms in the state, if not the nation. So there's dozens of people um, talking to this judge about every single thing. And damages are not easy and the engineering and accounting assumptions that underlie them, plus even some of the legal concepts, such as the value of the lost profits are measured at the time of breach. Well, when you start to transmute these legal principles onto these very complicated um, you know, numbers, 
what you're supposed to be doing can change, right? And then overlay a limitations period that the judge imposed on us that we did not really prepare for because we didn't think it was correct. And you're slicing and dicing these damages over and over and over again. So, I mean, literally, I think I had... I, I used to know the number like the back of my hand, but I, I want to say it was like 15 hours of dog bear Robinson challenges with experts testifying uh, to support their work. And then the judge would instruct us to go back and recalculate. And we probably recalculated three or four times mm. um, and didn't know whether it was going to be okay. That's just not good enough. And we're not going to do it again. I mean, it just, it, 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 oh. it to the very end, that was the challenge. Were we going to get our experts damages models into evidence? And that's where they really, the defense fought their last stand was on that issue. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm just thinking it's like, I, <laughs> I'll never complain about like when we have to update, like the economist report, if something you have to change something in the life care plan. And I'm like, Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> yeah. it's, it sounds like this was that times like a thousand. <laughs> well, but you know, that's where I earn my money is, is in being able to do that kind of thing. I like doing that kind of thing. That's what the engineering degree helps me be able yeah. to do. Um, and I really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are probably very good trial lawyers out there. Um, but this is kind of where I claim, you know, kind of a unique expertise has been able to do that very thing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you one thing I, I noticed and I, I couldn't tell if this had been an issue and maybe it was a resolve, but the, you know, initial contract was entered into in 2007 and then the actions happened in 2008, 2009, when, uh, this was basically taken from, uh, from Mesa. Was there a claim of a statute of limitations in, in- Yes. How did okay? And then it was it like a continuing fraud type? Uh, yeah. Response. Okay. okay. So here, this is where it gets so incredibly complicated. And frankly, <laughs> I never got the legal answer resolved to the way I wanted to get it resolved in the case. But okay. Again, we're back to a series of option contracts, and the option period ran for five years from the date the contract was signed. So if it was signed on. You know, I think it was January fifth uh, of two thousand seven. Everything that was acquired in this particular area between that date and five years later was supposed to be offered to Pickens, so that he could participate for his fifteen percent in exchange for fifteen percent of the ownership. Pay fifteen percent of the cost, get fifteen percent of the ownership. Same thing with the wells that are drilled. Now, layer on top of that, that this is a covenant running with the land. What does that mean? It means that it attaches to the land, just like a homeowners association covenant, right? You don't get rid of it just because the time stops or because um, you sell the land. So whatever got developed in that five years, he would continue to own and had the right to be notified that it had been taken so that he could participate. And there's a 1957 case in Texas that says until they give the notice that you have been offered the opportunity, the limitations period doesn't begin to run. So um, it was my argument that whatever got taken and by the way, it got amended and ran through 2018, everything in that basket should have been offered. The judge held us to 
um, a strict limitations period such that we were only allowed to, and the contract claim is four years in Texas. So if I filed on December 1 of 2014, I could only go back and get what was taken between December 1 of 2010 to the end of the AMI period, which was January. Okay. I had 14 months out of all of that stuff that I had to segregate and claim damages for. And, and so it, it was, it, it, yeah. Okay. I, Cause I did notice that on the, on the, on the verdict form that it had those, those date limitations. So that's where that comes from. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, and, there, and we haven't really talked about this, but there was there was a number of different tracks and some discussion about what tracks were going to be moved. And there was one called the Coltwell, and that sounded like that was the most lucrative of all of them. Was that within that it, time well, period? Yeah. yeah it, it, so here's the thing. Um, that was one of the tracks that Mr. Pickens had received notice of. And it said, yes, I'm going to participate in. So there, there's a little bit of paperwork involved in addition to the being, you know, an option contract. They're supposed to send notice and then you elect to participate or elect to not participate. And there's consequences relating to that decision. But what it doesn't do is take you out of it entirely. Um, we won't get into that because it didn't end up being an issue in the case. But um, the Colt well was the the well that proved the concept. It was important for that reason, not because it produced a lot of oil, um, but because what you could see from the recompletion of that well proved that there was a whole lot of oil in certain parts of the formation. So wells okay, can okay. not only generate oil, they can generate information. And that was the informational well. Yeah, because it seemed like that w one of the documents or emails that was important was that where uh, the Baytech folks had said, um, you know, let's let's get this deal done before they, they find out what happens at the Colt well. You know, right. otherwise it's going to change, you know, the, the negotiations right. essentially. That's okay. right. When they tried to buy out Pickens interest um, that there was an email and, and I think that got mentioned in the close and the open as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I was trying to understand, which I thought was just devastating for the defense was it, it sounded like after they were saying he had taken or, or given up his interest that he continued to spend, to pay expenses on the wells. Did he, was that? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> and another, another, I didn't know, I didn't know how the defense was going to deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, so so that's the other part of the other reason why Pickens did not realize that he had been cut out of the deal was he continued to receive bills from them for the entire period of time. Um, there's something called joint interest bills in oil and gas world, which is basically a statement of like if you were a property owner in a building, it would be your share of the expenses for having a fractional ownership of that building. So if you put in new plumbing or whatever was happening, you'd get a new bill, even though your ownership of the property had happened years before, right? So he keep 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 getting these bills, you know, month after month. And uh, and they weren't terribly well kept and there were a lot of errors in them, which is why when I talked about the the accountants on the other side being a key witness, that that was that was part of the reason why. Yeah, because I thought part of the defense was, well, we we gave him a, a credit of three hundred and seven thousand dollars. And so that that meant we paid him, which 
really it was, I mean, we, it sounded like the bills were just a mess and all over well, the place. And that's on that, why but, uh, it became critical for me to disprove what that payment was for. Right. And, okay. and, and I, I was able to do that through um, color coding of areas of land and color coding of jibs and, you know, tying everything up to where I could show that we still owned what we said. Yeah, we owned. Yeah. Um, well, I, I wanted to find out, did you, um, were you able to talk to any of the jurors afterwards about what they thought about everything? Um, we had a jury consultant who did talk to them and, um, <laughs> such an interesting trial, you know, we, we closed on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving in 2016. And they came back early Wednesday morning, um, you know, after about two and a half hours of deliberation and um, gave us their verdict. And then ran like the wind to go take care mm -hmm. of, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. So we only got to talk to a few of them. Um, but um, yeah, they, they seemed convinced of the things that we've already talked about, which is, you know, a written deal is a written deal and, and they didn't have the paperwork. And um, so, he, you know, we've already hit on most of the themes that I think yeah. that they found persuasive. Well, Krista, we, um, I, we mentioned several times about the book that you wrote, The Last Trial of T. Boone Pickens. And, and I wanted to make sure to the extent we haven't talked about it already, what it was about this case and this experience that made you in all your free time say, I'm going to write a book about this. Yeah. Well, I've never had a case like this. I mean, I've had lots of cases. I've had lots of trials, but I've never had a client like T. Boone Pickens who at 88 years old was willing in his long and storied career to make this the most important trial of his life and for it to come at the very end, you know? And there were just so many interesting things that happened during the trial. Again, in part, I wrote this book to explain to people who don't deal in commercial litigation um, and clients who've never been through the process to understand just how intense this is and how much investment it takes, not only of attorney's fees, but time and commitment to going and getting the documents and doing the analysis that's necessary. So it was important to me from that, but it was just really important to me to tell kind of the, the story of the last trial of T. Boone Pickens because he was such a fascinating character and And we were so different, you know, and I was, you know, 35 years younger than him, um, but we were friends and uh, we got in heated battles and I thought he was going to fire me during the trial and I was ready to stand up to him <laughs> anyway and and how we got through that whole process and, and, and just kind of, it just seemed like a good story that needed telling. Yeah. 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 And had it, had it been published before he passed away or was it, no, was it after he passed? No, he passed in, um, on September 11th of 2019. Okay. Um, and I tell people that I have no doubt in my mind that he picked September 11th because it's a date we all remember mm. and he was a great communicator and he knew, knew how to make a point. And so we remember that T Boone Pickens died on September 11th. Um, <laughs> Um, but it was published in April of 2020. Okay. Okay. Got it. Well, Krista, this has been just a, uh, uh, I mean, a 
Fascinating case and, and a great result, great work by you and your team. Um, is there anything else about the Mesa Petroleum Partners versus Baytech and Delaware Basin Resources, uh, J. Cleo Thompson uh, LP case that um, you want to make sure our listeners have heard that we haven't talked about? Um, Mr. Pickens was a diehard Republican. I am a committed Democrat and have run for office as a Democrat. Um, and I, he loved to tease me about Hillary Clinton um, and that I was a supporter. And I put him on the stand the day that Hillary Clinton lost the election. And, and I, I say this because in the times that we live in where people cannot see eye to eye, um, and really can't get together on anything. He and I managed to work on this very intense trial. And I put him on the stand the day that was kind of my lowest defeat and he did not make it an issue for me. And we both had to get together to produce this result. And I think people can do that if they just focus on getting something done. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely. a nice message, especially right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Very timely, <laughs> again. <laughs> um, well, uh, I want to remind everybody, we've been talking about the Mesa Petroleum uh, versus Baytech and Delaware Basin Resources case. It w- resulted in $146 million uh, on behalf of Mesa Petroleum Partners. And we have been talking to Krista Castaneda uh, of the Castaneda Firm. Uh, you can look her up at castanedafirm.com. That's C-A, I should say, castaneda-firm.com. So it's C-A-S-T-A-N-E-D-A-firm.com. Krista, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again.
Thank you for listening.